0: Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 25. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 25. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast him out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it, is, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. nor a servant above his master it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master if they are called the master if they have called the master of the house of beelzebul how much more will they malign those of his household this is the word of the lord thanks
1: Good morning. Is this on? Ah, good morning. I just want to, before we pray and start, I just want to give two quick announcements. One is, if you're a YG or youth group volunteer for this past retreat, um, I have had some feedback that uh, maybe a debrief with me would be appreciated. So if you would like to be encouraged and perhaps have some food, 1.30 uh, today, here in one of the rooms here. So if you're a YG retreat volunteer, and you would like to debrief with me, uh, you're invited to join me after the youth group service today around 1.30, 1.45 in one of the rooms there. The second one I wanted to share with you, we have, we have said it, but I just want to say it again. Table Talk is an amazing time, which I invite you to come. You can bring people from this church, but people outside of this church, and then we can have a Table Talk discussion, especially about the heart issues of the gospel. Uh, like, what is Christianity? Who is God? What does the gospel mean? What does it say? So I invite you to come. It's on Wednesdays in the room across the hall, the multi-purpose room. If you come at 7.30, you can have some food. and We will start at 8 o'clock. Having said, let's start with a prayer. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, of, o Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. And so, Lord, we appeal to you that you would open our hearts and our ears over the mouth of this servant as your word is proclaimed and your gospel is preached transform our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a longer passage. If I were to use one word to describe this passage today, I'm getting right into it. It would be urgency. Urgency. Not only because it follows after Jesus' statement on the harvest that is plentiful, but the workers are few, but because of what we'll see here in this next passage, commonly referred to as Jesus' second discourse. Okay, This is the second discourse. There are five discourses in the Gospel of Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount, and then we see here the Sending of the Twelve, and then in a few chapters later, there's the Parables, and then there's Instructions, and then there's the Olivet Discourse, or the Discourse about the End Times. And so we're going to get right into the second discourse of Jesus, or discourse just means long teaching or teaching put together, right? And we start out by, by reading, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So we begin this discourse with Jesus now showing, after showing that he is one with authority, giving authority to the 12 disciples, authority over demons, every disease and affliction. And Matthew, after saying this, he takes a pause to identify who the 12 disciples were or are. So he says this, Jesus gives authority to the 12 disciples, and then he takes a pause, and verses 2 to 4, he identifies who the 12 disciples are, who the 12 got, who had uh, authority from Jesus. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and his and john his brother philip and bartholomew thomas and matthew the tax collector james the son of Alphaeus, and thaddeus simon the zealot and judas iscariot who betrayed him if you just take these three verses there are a number of things that stand out for instance the word first peter is named first among the apostles and then we see the rest of the 12 are mentioned actually in pairs Most likely because just like in the book of Mark, they were sent out in pairs. I'm not like, I'm just telling you what it is. I'm not explaining everything. So I just hope that you get it. Um, Otherwise, you know, we could stay here for a while. Jesus didn't send out his apostles alone, but he purposely sent them out in pairs. And here in Matthew, we see the only instance of the word apostle. It's the only instance of the word apostle, and it was used in reference to the 12 disciples. Apostle, meaning those who were sent. There are two Jameses among the 12, and they were differentiated by whose son they were, right? The son of Zebedee and the son of Alphaeus, but they were two Jameses, right? A Mark, we would see the James. Uh, the son of Alphaeus, as James the Lesser or James the Younger, Mark 15:40. And then there's the, inf- excuse me, infamous Judas Iscariot. It seems to be a last name, but we know that there were no last names back then, so it wasn't a thing back then. So the tag Judas received as Iscariot meant traitor or assassin. In some instances, it could have meant redhead which would have just been weird. Imagine Judas the redhead. Anyway, um, if it did, I I think it would have been hilarious, but it probably didn't. But Judas Iscariot was most likely to have meant the man of Kerioth. And now because of what he did, Kerioth was in southern Judea, but now because of what he did, Iscariot meant traitor. Just as if you don't like somebody and this person betrayed you, like you had a friend group and this person left. Like even if you're a Christian, you'd be like, Judas, you know, that kind of thing. So he was known to be a traitor. And of the tags that we see here, there are some people with tags, some people without tags. But of the tags that we see here for the apostles, the ones that haven't, I haven't mentioned yet are the most fascinating to me. The two that have nothing to do with birth or origin, right? The two tags that have nothing to do with birth or origin are Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Tax collectors were so seen as people who sold their souls to the enemy. They sold their Jewish identity to the Romans. Then they would have been treated as the enemy in many cases. Zealots, on the other hand, during that time were known as the rebel band of forces. There were many kind of rebels, but to be labeled a zealot meant that you were of the violent overthrow of the government kind. There are stories of when Roman soldiers would go along the paths of their cities and maybe one Roman soldier would stay behind for a drink of water, a zealot who would be um, masked or covered or disguised would come out, cut his throat, and then slip back into the crowd just like a video game. I kid you not, that's, that's what the kind of imagery zealot had, violent overthrow of the government whatever way you could. And in many ways, if you think about it, these two people and their primary party affiliations would have been polar opposites. And here, they are presented as being part of the same group. How different would you have had to be to be a tax collector and a zealot in worldview understanding, loyalty, political affiliation, and yet here, their position to be at the same table and not at each other's throats some people have speculated that if Jesus were to come down today in our time he would be a republican or he would be a democrat that is an absurd absurd thought that he would come to this earth and submit to a political a secular political party when he is the king he would obviously be libertarian. No, I'm just kidding. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be he part of a secular political party. And if we're to expound on all the things here from verses 2 to 4, I'm sure we could just make a sermon series. For instance, who's Thaddeus? Why is he mentioned here never again? And unless you count John 14, and he just asks one question, Jesus, is the political world now or later? And then you don't hear about anything about Thaddeus. Like, who are these guys? I'm sure we could have made um, an exposition or just expounded to be a sermon series, yet, and some were great, some were small, you'd never heard of it. One of the best Bible trivia questions that you could give is name the 12 apostles. Almost no one can really do that unless you purposefully either memorize Luke's or Mark's or Matthew's 12 that have been um, you know, shown here. And yet, no matter how great or small, that you think these 12 are, these are the 12 that will be honored for all of eternity as the 12 apostles of Jesus, minus Judas Iscariot. But they will be honored for all eternity as it says in Revelation. These are the 12. And in verse 5, it says, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them. Instructing has this kind of command, commanding word. It's like a synonymous to command. It's almost like a military command. So apostles also being sent out. If you heard the word apostolos, you would have thought of a ship being sent out or a military ship. And Jesus commands or instructs them. And so you see this picture and he commands them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus gives them restrictions or boundaries of where they could go before sending them out. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. But go to the Jews. And this wasn't because of Matthew's or even Jesus's um, anti Gentile bias. Then you haven't been reading, if you think so, you haven't been reading Jesus going to Syria in chapter 4, performing these miracles, or healing the centurion in chapter 8, and we'll see in chapter 15 with the Canaanite woman or the Seraphimician woman and so on. But the primary focus for Jesus right now was the lost sheep of Israel to fulfill the scriptures that we went over last week, especially in Ezekiel 34, among other biblical prophecies. And this is where, where we would see the scriptures say, first to the Jew, then the Gentile. There is an order to even the proclamation. And in verse 7 it says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, there's a proclamation that the kingdom is near. It's not far off. Here we see the words, At hand. It's showing us the proximity and immediacy of the kingdom. You wouldn't say near or at hand if it was still a while away. If you see something on the outskirts of town, you would say, look, that thing is near. It's right around the corner. You may not see it. But it's literally, dude, it's right around the corner. This is the proclamation. And as they go proclaiming, this is a continuous verb. As they go proclaiming, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Uh, what's interesting here is there's no article for, uh, before sick or dead. So it would have been read in the Greek because there's no the sick or the dead. There's no the. And because it's awkward, we put the the in there. In the Greek, it would have been read kind of like this: heal sick people, raise dead people, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. As you go, proclaiming this proclamation. The picture is: as you go, proclaiming, do as Jesus did. You receive without pain, give without pain. As far as we know, the disciples. We don't know if they healed any sicknesses or raised anybody from the dead. It doesn't seem that way. We don't know if they even healed leprosy or the demon-possessed right now. So uh, as, um, even as disciples, we don't know if any of the 12 were actually healed from sickness. They were dead before and they were raised. They didn't have leprosy. None of them were demon-possessed, as far as we know. So when Jesus goes... You have received without paying, give without pay. What does that mean? Once again, the proclamation and the miracles were a thing to be clumped together. The miracles would have validated the proclamation. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What proof is there? What evidence is there that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? We're seeing all these things take place, like healings and miracles and things of that nature. And Jesus continues, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Don't take any extra things on this journey. Jesus basically sends them as they are and then says, for the laborer deserves his food. The assurance is that if Jesus sends, then he will also take care of the worker that he sends. And in verse 11, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town, town or village, big or small. Find out who is worthy, pick a place, enter it. And if it's worthy, then there really will be peace. But if it's not worthy, the peace that the disciples carried with them would return back to them. And if they don't listen to you, shake off the dust from your feet. At that time, the Jews had held this belief that even Gentile lands were unclean, so um, you wouldn't just enter into their homes like we saw before, but going even into Gentile territory was like dirty. So if you had to, you would go journey through the town, but once you got back, it was customary. They would just shake off the dirt like this while they, while they acquired Um, while they were acquired abroad. And Jesus took this custom that they understood to the Jews, that when you see something unclean that was outside that didn't belong in the house, you would shake off the dust or dirt. Jesus shows that people who didn't receive Jesus' words should be treated like the Gentiles or outsiders. Do you see where we're going? And then he goes, why? Why would he do that? Verse 15, he says, truly. Truly is the word amen. So anytime the word truly comes come up, it's the literal word for amen. And so it's to say something like pause, take a break, take a breather. There are all these instructions that are giving you. And Pastor Eugene just zipped through 14 verses, what just happened, right? But when you see truly, you pause. And then you know something deep is about to happen deeper, and so you have to like perk up your ears. What just is going on? And Jesus goes, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The places that Jesus proclaims here were places, who are these places? What, 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 what do you mean that town? Those towns are the towns that did not repent or believe, okay? And the punishment is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? So this is what we call the Christological claim. Here are these wicked, wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities were so wicked, so detestable, that the Lord couldn't let them even survive on his grace now anymore, so he burned them with fire and sulfur. Sulfur and fire rained down from the skies to destroy this city. And Jesus is going, those who reject the message of the apostles, those who reject the ones that I'm sending now, the 12, if they reject your message, the punishment for those towns will be greater than one of the most wrathful punishments that we see in the Old Testament. How terrible then does Jesus see the rejection of the message that he gives the apostles? How terrible is that you rejected the message? If it's even more bearable, like Sodom and Gomorrah, fire raining down, people burning up into ash, thinking that's a, that's, a, that's a better option. That's pretty terrible. This is why whenever he says truly, or when he says amen, this is deep. We've got to stop. Like what is going on? And this is the Christological claim. The king has come, and you didn't receive him. He was near, and you rejected him. You heard his commandments and you did not obey. For the wrath of God will be poured out so much so that even fire raining down from heaven will seem pleasant. 16, behold, I am sending you, and he's talking to the 12, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Watch out. Behold means stop, look up, look up. Behold. Jesus sends his disciples out, not into wolves, but they're already there, right? He's in the midst of wolves. These wolves are everywhere. These wolves, as, as, as you're sending him out, there are already wolves around. So, he says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Disciples may be sheep, as it says here, but they need not be stupid sheep. Be aware. Serpents are wise in the sense that they are clever, and if they sense threat, they can be hostile to the threat, right? Doves are innocent in their gentleness, but we've seen throughout history people appreciate doves for their purity. So serpents can detect danger and address it, while doves aren't tainted by other things. Do you see what he's saying? Identify the wolves without becoming one. Identify the wolves without becoming one. Beware of men. Andropos. Men obviously is not referring to the male sex, but but obviously people. But what kind of people? People who have power or authority. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. These people with authority, they're going to put you over to the courts. You're going to get flogged. Flogging was a serious matter. It wasn't like someone took like one leather whip and, and then you're like, ow, oh, like that kind of thing. The whip consisted of was a, a scourge that had four thongs. It had four whips, if you think about it. And it was a handle with four thongs or whips that protruded out from the, it was tied to the handle. And inside these whips, they would uh, attach smaller metal beads or pieces of bone fragments that were sharp all, all across the thongs, right? And then they whip you with that. What would happen then is the beads would hit your skin and soften it, like tenderize it. The bones would then go into the skin, cut it, and then rip it apart so this is what flogging meant it was not uh just you know it's gonna hurt but it was a serious matter and he is saying they're going to flog you in their synagogues Um, it was a rule that you could not flog somebody 40 times because no matter who you are if you got flogged 40 times you would die that's what they believed so they flogged nobody 40 times. There was one person who got flogged 40 minus 1, which meant the maximum time. It means 39 times this person was flogged, and it was Paul. Apostle Paul endured it five times as we see it in 2 Corinthians. While they were flogging, there were three judges that would happen during this punishment. One would read Scripture, and they would read it while they flogged you. Probably parts where they thought that you infringed upon the law. One would count the strokes. So, like, one, two, and the third would give the command before every stroke. Now it's starting to get serious. Now you're like, okay, tunic. And then, he's like, then he goes, beware. Amen. Behold. And you're like, what's going on? What, 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 what did I miss, Jesus? What did I miss here if you're one of the 12? Now it's starting to get serious. Being dragged from the Jewish punishment to government kings it wasn't any better. If anything, it was worse. The reason why they stopped at 39 was because 40, they thought, was just inhumane. The Gentiles didn't have that, that, that kind of restriction or boundary. They would go beyond. And Jesus would say they would get dragged into these places to bear witness to them. And so when you get delivered over, in verse 19... Don't be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are about to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The key word in verse 19 is when, not if. This is certain. He is telling his disciples, this is going to happen to you. This will happen to you. But don't be anxious you will be in front of people way smarter than you, much better educated than you. They, will, they would have gone to Cambridge or Oxford, the best schools in the world, and you, you who's listening to me, you couldn't even get your GED. But don't worry. At that time, the Holy Spirit will speak through you. Verse 21, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. There is a progression, an escalation, and it's getting worse. Brother will deliver brother to death? Father, his child? Children, their parents? And have them put to death? All for what? Because of Jesus? Now this is Jesus getting at the core of the community, the family unit. This is grand scale persecution coming and it will be the complete breakdown of the family, the most basic unit of society. There will be so much hatred for Jesus that it will go all the way down to the basic unit of society. There will be widespread hate and opposition to Jesus and his teachings. And because they are so closely, these 12 were so closely associated with Jesus, they will be hated. But here's the thing He goes, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is an understanding we have to have. Salvation is not a one and done thing, it is a process. It begins with your obedience and your confession, what we classically know to be repentance and baptism. It begins with your obedience and confession, but it doesn't end there. It starts there, but it must finish in discipleship. It means that real disciples will persevere whatever trials are thrown their way. Those that endure will find themselves in the presence of the Lord forever. In verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Again, we see the word truly. That word is amen. That means It gets even more in degree here what's going on. And when you find yourself persecuted, flee. Find another town and continue to do what I commanded you. Then the amen statement comes. You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. In this truly or amen statement, we see the second usage in Matthew of the title Son of Man. And in this usage now, it's in context with judgment. Your work won't be finished before judgment comes comes, and this judgment will be terrifying. So we see here there are two amens, and these are the pauses. And this is this is Jesus sending out his disciples, but there are there is a very serious message. There is a serious warning, but also a serious message. And then verse 24 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and a servant like his master if they have called the master of that house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? While someone is a disciple, they are not above his teacher. If you are a slave or servant, you are not above your master. These are just some basic truths that Jesus is giving us. But why is he giving us this? Where do we find contentment? When are we satisfied? If you are a disciple of Jesus, you find contentment when you are like your teacher. Are you listening? If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, we find contentment in being like our teacher. If you are a slave to Christ, which we sing songs like, we're a servant of the king, right? We find contentment To be like the master. What are people calling the disciples master teacher right now? What are people calling Jesus? And we saw it at the end of chapter 9. Prince of demons. But here it's spelled out. Beelzebul. Some believe this was a corrupted saying from Beelzebub. Which just meant Lord of the flies or Satan. Right? There's a famous novel out called Lord of the flies too in light of this understanding Beelzebub. Beelzebul does exist, however, as a Canaanite deity, and it was used by Jews to to say Beelzebul, which was an other god to say this was the devil. But it had this connotation. If you said Beelzebul or Baalzebul, uh, it made it sound like Lord of dung. So there is this disdain, hatred, Is putting down when someone would call Jesus Beelzebul. No matter what it meant in either case, it was used, as Jesus said, to malign him. And so if Jesus is being called the prince of demons, demons who are terrible, they're the enemy, they should be destroyed, guess what his disciples will be looked at as? In the beginning of this passage We see Jesus is sending and instructing. The words used here are military functions. The urgency that the disciples would have felt and heard was that of Jesus, the one that Jesus had. Here is the commanding officer giving urgent instructions to his disciples while sending them on this dangerous mission. It's an important mission. It's a mission you wouldn't have understood if you didn't read the passage before. Why is it so urgent? Why is it so dangerous? Why is it so important? In the passage before, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he send his disciples? Because of his great love for us. You might be thinking after we read all these verses, ha, good thing the disciples did it. Now I don't have to worry. Then you have conveniently skipped over the last line. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? The call of Christ is not a call to comfort or ease. The call of Christ is to be like him. It's a call to come and die. Why did Jesus have to die? And what does it mean for us to die right now? And the scriptures say, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he didn't open up his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he didn't open his mouth. Jesus was killed. Jesus was murdered, even though he was perfect. But the scriptures also say, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's will to have Jesus bear the sins of the world and die. God laid on Jesus the perfect lamb, our sins and our transgressions that we committed against the most holy God. There is a transfer from us, our sins, to the lamb, but that's not all. There is a transfer of good standing, eternal merit, perfection that is transferred from Jesus to us. So now that as we place our trust in him, he is our master teacher, we can follow in his footsteps. We are to be his disciples and follow just as he did. You know, Jesus conquered death, and for those that are in Christ, death no longer has a hold on them. So even if we are to suffer, we're not to be afraid that we will be completely destroyed. Even though we are afflicted in every way, we are not crushed, perplexed, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. As we follow Jesus, suffering and persecution will come. Will come. You know why? Because we're following Jesus. However, the suffering is not the end. It's not the finish. It's not the last word. God gets the last word. And God does amazing things with it. A lot of you here have Korean heritage. I wanna tell you about this man named Robert J. Thomas. He was a missionary to China, and you may have heard of him. He was a missionary to China, and then he had heard about this tiny country next to China, and his heart broke. His heart had compassion. He didn't know anything about it. All he knew was this country was closed off completely. And he wondered and inquired, How can we give the gospel to this tiny country? Like, you can't go in. They're very hostile. They'll kill you as soon as you step in. You can't go in. So what he did was anytime there was a ship, he would ask that the ship go by the coastlands of Korea. And he would throw as much paraphernalia as he could into the shores, saying, read these these pamphlets, read these pamphlets. Korea would send an envoy. They would send a ship. Don't come near to the shores or we're going to destroy you. But he did it two, three times, kept on doing it. One day, actually, when he was on this ship, uh, the ship got stuck in a dune and it couldn't move. The Koreans took this as an opportunity, set a ship on fire, probably with explosives, and sent it at a collision course with the ship R.J. Thomas was on. That ship exploded, caught on fire, and everybody had to evacuate the ship. That's when the Koreans attacked. And they attacked everybody on the ship, tried to defend themselves, they had some weaponry, but they all died. R.J. Thomas came out from this burning ship, and you know what he did? He didn't come out with a gun. He came out with the Bible, and he yelled in the Korean that he knew, he yelled, Yesu! Yesu! That's all he knew. So he would just yell, Jesus, Jesus, with a Bible in his hand, would go onto the shore, and he would be executed on that beach shore. This executioner, this person that beheaded, this uh, R.J. Thomas, after he beheaded him, he realized, and he would say this in his memoirs, I killed a good man. That's what he said. He took the Bible that he had, and he didn't know what it was. It was just a book. It's like, what is this book? They didn't, they couldn't even communicate with the people. He took this Bible and he used the paper, the pages of the Bible as wallpaper in his house. He didn't know what it was. So he just put wallpaper in his house from the pages of the Bible and we now know it in Korean history of the mission history that people will come from far and wide to listen or to hear or to read the word of God on the, on the walls of this man's house. The rest is history. That's your history. God could take suffering And it's not the last word. We are not to be afraid, but we are to trust that Jesus can take anything and transform lives by the power of his word and by the power of his spirit. And so what about us now? What do we do? What does the word say? It says, repent and be baptized. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed for you were continually straying like sheep but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls what are we to what are we to do now die to your sin once you know the price that was paid for you what Jesus had to endure for your salvation you don't like sin anymore. How can you when you know that this is what crucified your Savior? And so now what are we exhorted to do? Die to your sin. Hate what once separated you from God. Hate the heart of disobedience. Hate the disillusionment the world once sold you on. The world sells this to you still today. Believe in this and you'll be saved. As if the world has an answer for the oncoming destruction The world will be a better place if this political party got into power. Hate that lie. Hate the self-aggrandizement, the obsession with self-help, self-esteem, selfies. Hell, hate the self. Put those sins and lies to death in yourself by fully trusting in Jesus and love his word. Hold on to his promises. Obey his commandments. Know that true sweetness can be only found in Christ. It's going to give you a quick application. You cannot do this by yourself. Even the 12, even the apostles who were to go through the most heinous, next to Jesus, they would go through the most heinous of crimes that would be committed against them. Even them, he didn't send alone. He sent them out in pairs. We cannot do this life alone. You have each other. We have the word that we hold on together. Stop thinking that you can hate sin and crucify sin and die to sin by yourself. Stop holding it in and hiding it from anybody else. What happens is then it grows. The bitterness grows. The hate grows. The sin grows. The lust grows. It just grows. But what we need to do is we need to take it out and crucify it. We need to die to the sin. And this is the power that God gives us, but He makes, us sure, makes sure that we don't do it alone because He shows us that we're not to do it alone. That's why He gave us church. So, this is what we come together to do exhort ourselves. A, we don't follow the message of the world, we don't get disillusioned by it anymore because in Jesus Christ we have been shown the truth. I really want you to get plugged in to a partnership, a group, not just a group that, you know, goes bowling, it's great, you know, or swims, whatever, that's, that's fine. But this group should exhort each other to follow Christ. Do you have partners that do that with you? Follow Christ. Don't lose sight of the goal. Endure to the end. And Jesus Christ gives us the church, and he empowers the church with his spirit. Let's pray. These are the words that you give us, O oh Lord, because you saw us like a sheep without a shepherd, and you had great compassion for us. And so, Lord, because of your saving grace, we are here today able to listen to your truth, able to recognize that it was our sin that separated us from you in the first place. It was our sin that would lead us to destruction. However, because of your amazing grace, we were saved from that destruction. And more important than anything else in the world will throw at us saying, this is most important. This is of utmost importance. This is the most important thing. We see the most important thing now is to follow you, Jesus, wherever you lead us, wherever you go. We want to trust and follow our lord take this time to pray and as the lord has urged in your heart through the word lift it up to the lord and he hears your cries let's pray